Hello everyone, and welcome to Cardiology News. My name's Stephen, I'm an elderly care doctor, but also one of the teaching fellows at East Surrey Hospital, and it's really exciting to welcome you to a new series of podcasts that we've put together just for cardiology trainees. It's been a challenging couple of years with COVID restrictions for all of you trying to gain the relevant training in cardiology that you require to progress in your careers. We understand how difficult that has been, and that's why we've put together this short series of podcasts, touching on some of the topics that you may benefit from spending a little bit of time catching up on. To do this, we've had the privilege of speaking to some experts in the field, and we really hope that you enjoy the teaching that they've provided for you. In this first episode, I speak to Dr. Rebecca Schofield, who is a consultant cardiologist with a particular interest in cardiac imaging. Dr. Schofield had a paper published in the Heart Journal last year entitled Nuclear Cardiology State of the Art. We mentioned that piece of work in our chat and she explains her views on the future for nuclear imaging in our healthcare system, as well as touching on why other imaging modalities might be used more instead today. And just at the end, she also spends a few minutes talking about what life is like for her as a woman working in cardiology as well as offering some pearls of wisdom for all of you trainees trying to map out the next steps in your career. Lots of great stuff, and we really hope you enjoy it. We started our time together with Dr. Schofield explaining to me why not many cardiology doctors today are being trained in nuclear cardiology. It's quite a difficult subspecialty to get training in, partly because the way that it's performed, that the centres that do nuclear cardiology in the the UK are quite heterogeneous. So some some of the labs are run by uh, nuclear medicine physicians. Some of the labs, the reporting is all done by radiographers or nuclear medicine technicians. So as a cardiology trainee, it it can be quite difficult to know where to go and how to access. And, And I think the other thing that's happened in nuclear imaging is that because we've had cardiac CT and cardiac MR come on the scene, it's it's been the sort of Cinderella cardiac imaging subspecialty. You know, it, it's old hat. Nobody's interested in it anymore. What's the point in training in, in nuclear cardiology when we've got uh, MRI and we've got cardiac CT? So I think that's been the other problem that it, it's sort of suffered a bit of a, a a blow from a you know it's not it's not seen to be the up and coming uh, exciting subspecialty of cardiac imaging. And I think then the that those things combined, you know, the, the inability to get access to a, um, a nuclear cardiology lab, the reputational changes, I suppose, I think have just meant that it's almost you, hardly anyone's coming out now with, with training in nuclear cardiology. So it's just going to be now a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. So if we start by sort of talking about the, the broader area of cardiac imaging, like we were talking about in terms of CT scanning and MRI scanning, which is quite commonplace now. Um, yes. What sort of patients might you send for CT imaging? Which patients might you send for cardiac MRIs? Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think your question is absolutely the right one because it's, 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 not a, it's not about arguing who's got the best test. It's about what test is going to help me answer the most important clinical question from the patient in front of me. And actually, the second question is, what can my patient manage? What is my patient going to be able to manage? Because depending on the imaging modality you choose, you know, there's different levels of understanding of and following of instruction, comfort, you know, the different levels that the patient has to be able to sign up to as well. So 
for me, I think the strength of cardiac CT is patients with previous grafts. It's for patients where you uh, are quite convinced that they probably don't have angina, but you're concerned that they have lots of risk factors uh, and they could have a very high atheroma burden. So you're not necessarily looking for obstructive coronary disease, but you're trying to get an understanding of, of what their overall coronary anatomy is and, and how much plaque burden they have so that you can aggressively manage them from a primary prevention point of view. And I think it's really helpful when you think that you're going to find perhaps just a solitary lesion that's going to end up needing stenting. It, it's not so helpful in patients who are elderly with a lot of coronary calcification. The coronary calcification, even with the new iterative reconstruction algorithms, is still a problem. And, and it means that we often overcall uh, degree of stenosis in CT. So the other patients who aren't suitable are patients who just can't hold their breath. I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but there are certain patients who can't understand the instructions, can't hold their breath, and patients who are in fast atrial fibrillation, you know, unless you've got a fantastic scanner, it's still quite challenging to image them. Uh, so that they would be my, my main areas where I would want to use cardiac CT. Uh, what, what about MRI imaging? Is there a, a certain subset of patients that you think MRI imaging would be better for? Or again, does it just depend on what the patient can manage? Well, I think, I think the, the strength of MRI is obviously the ability to tissue characterize. You can, you can sort of virtually histopathologically examine the myocardium and, and you know, that's its key, if you like, it's USP. And so if you want to know about the myocardium, you know, why is it thick? Is this hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? What's the scar quantification? Or is there viability in this territory? MRI is very powerful. The difficulty with, with MRI, and, and this is, I think, in part, also where nuclear cardiology fell down. If you rewind, say, 20 or 30 years, you know, nuclear cardiology and MIBI scanning was going to be, you know, it's an ischemia test, it's a viability and infarction test, it's fantastic. And then it rolled out from the bigger or, you know, tertiary centers. And unless you've got then a handle on what's happening in these, these other centers and the quality and the governance of the, the imaging, you start then to see services which are not, you know, they're, 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 less, they're less than satisfactory, they're substandard. And because of that, then what you get is you get referral fatigue. If they're referring patients for a test and they're getting reports back, which are meaningless because they give 20,000 different differential diagnoses when you actually wanted to do the test to refine your differential diagnosis. You know, it, it, it erodes the confidence in the technique. So the MR is fantastic, but again, needs to be done well in centres that know how to do it well. And, and also needs to, you need to think about who you are going to send because although it's quoted as the gold standard technique for many different imaging questions, volumes, shunts, congenital, myocardial fibrosis, etc. It all relies on the quality of the imaging. So I think trying to put everybody through a magnet because that's your favourite technique, again, just is not the right approach, is my personal opinion. And what, what you uh, seem to be saying is that nuclear imaging has sort of gone out of fashion a little bit. D does that mean less people are going for nuclear imaging because more are going for CT and MRI? Well, yeah, I, the, the problem is, though, the bottlenecks. So most district generals will have a gamma camera that's hardly, you know, that's used for some bone scans and, you know, some BQ scans and a few white cell scans, potentially. But most district generals will have a gamma camera that should have some room on it to put some cardiac work. 
most district generals will not have a, a cardiac CT scanner with loads of capacity because, you know, they're, they're, they're now dealing with the COVID backlog. You know, we're, we're going to see, I think, over the next few years, massive challenges to our access to medical diagnostics. And I think all the medical subspecialties have to be responsible and so not send patients unless it's going to change clinical management. I think we're all going to have to tighten our belts a bit, really. Otherwise, we're going to, you know, it, we're, we're, the service is only as good as the service it provides for all of the service users, not just perhaps the 10% that's in your field of vision. So I think that people are more likely to refer patients for cardiac CT and MR because it's more a more fashionable technique. There's been there's lots of very high-profile, eloquent speakers that are doing the, the, the rounds and speaking to trainees and, and telling them about the importance of these techniques. And, and everything that they say is completely correct. But nuclear cardiology is a bit like Ron Seal. You know, it does what it says on the tin. So if you just want to know, does my patient have prognostically significant myocardial ischemia? Does my patient have viability or has their LAD territory completely infarcted with no viability? And maybe can tell you that. And you can get anybody through a MIDI. You know, they don't have to speak English. They can have atrial fibrillation. They can have a pacemaker. You can put anybody. It can have, you know, it can be on uh, dialysis. It can have end-stage renal failure. You can put anybody through a, uh, a MIDI scan. So I think that the COVID pandemic is an opportunity to revisit, if you like, go back in the back of the cupboard and see, you know, go back to some of the more old fashioned, less exciting techniques, but say, actually, how can we use these and how can we mobilize them at scale to help us process patients and ensure that patients are being managed appropriately? Because at the end of the day, that's really what we're here for. Making pretty pictures is important, but ultimately it's about patient management. I was reading uh, a piece that uh, you helped contribute to in the BMJ there last year, just a few days ago. It was called Nuclear Cardiology State of the Art. And yes. in that paper, you talked about the use of nuclear imaging in a few different things, in ischemic heart disease, in heart failure, and in infection and inflammation. And you also explained about how it can be helpful in other things such as uh, sarcoidosis, um, device infection, endocarditis. Which of those conditions that you mentioned in that paper is it most helpful for assessing and which do you think if we are going to use COVID as a platform to bring nuclear imaging back to an extent what sort of patients with, with what types of pathology should we be trying to funnel towards nuclear imaging? So if we start with this sort of esoteric small fry first things we, we set up a DPD service locally and it means that we can diagnose ATTR amyloid without the need for cardiac biopsy and so far, I think in the last 18 months or so, we've done about 250 cases. And about 30% of those are positive. Now, you could argue, yes, well, unless they're going down to the National Amyloid Center, they're not going to be eligible for treatment. But, you know, this is another, again, unique area that nuclear cardiology has the upper hand. So certainly thinking about diagnosis of, of amyloid and, and soon treatments will be available, although the NICE technical appraisal wasn't successful this time. It, I'm sure it will come eventually. The other area that I think nuclear cardiology is incredibly helpful is in endocarditis and inflammation. So infection and inflammation. So particularly prosthetic valves, endocarditis, but also native valve endocarditis, because it, it can be challenging. The patients are often complicated. They're not straightforward, but it has to be done then in conjunction with a specialist endocarditis MDT, because you need all of those 
stakeholders involved in, in the decision making. So it's about the imaging technique, but it's also about the imaging lab, if you like, being plugged into then a, a really good MDT. The same is true for inflammation, that you want your PET imaging service plugged into then a really high caliber inflammatory myocardial condition MDT. For me, rubidium PET is, is still incredibly helpful for these patients with severe three-vessel disease. You know, that's, that's an area where MIBI falls down completely because you get balanced ischemia. And these patients, you know, you're making a big decision. Do, do we crack your chest open and graft you or do we continue medical management? And also that sort of prognostication, particularly in the brittle diabetics, etc. cetera. So um, the rubidium PET utilization is something that we're going to look at through the cardiac networks, but I, I suspect it's very, very patchy indeed. And I suspect that there's a huge proportion of the population who simply don't get access because there's no local center. Again, it's about case selection, but for the right patient group, it's an incredibly powerful technique. Another thing that you mentioned in that paper was about how useful it is for highlighting the viability of myocardium. And mm. I, I would just be interested as somebody who's not an expert in cardiology by any means, how does that compare to what an echocardiogram can tell you about somebody's heart function? So the, I mean, the ways of assessing viability through echo would be to use a low-dose dobutamine protocol. And there, there is a lot of evidence to support the use of dobutamine stress echo in the assessment of viability. The reason that MR became very popular in this regard was because of your ability to visualize scar burden um, and, and papers looking at the degree of transmurality of, of scar and, and viability. But th there's a lot more to it than just how, how big is the scar. So that's where the use of nuclear in, in this question of viability becomes more interesting. So to do hybrid imaging, and I think that's another area that we'll see expand we don't need to just use one test to answer the question. We can actually use more than one modality because they give they give it a slightly different view. And so the use of techniques like PET-MR, certainly for me, and review, reviewing the, the evidence, and again, it's an area with, with limited evidence. To me, it, 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 it gives a bit, we're a bit closer to the truth, I think, with that hybrid of MR plus PET for viability than just MR on its own. I think the idea of seeing cardiac imaging modalities as complementary rather than in competition is, I think, the, the key point I'm trying to make. Do you think that's the direction that things will move in the near future, that we'll start to see more of a hybrid approach? I hope so. But I think I do think that one of the key things that's got, going to have to change in terms of training is the ability for trainees who wish to do so to train in, in multimodality cardiac imaging. So often trainees are asked to choose an imaging modality and another subspecialty. So, you know, do cardiac MR and heart failure or cardiac MR and devices. There's very little opportunity for trainees to say, do you know what, actually, what I really want to be is a cardiac imager. And in order to be a really comprehensive cardiac imager, I want to learn about all modalities. And at the moment, I don't think the training programs are set up to easily enable that to happen. But that, to me, is the real power because then you're thinking clinically about the patient in front of you having an understanding of all of the modalities, their strengths and weaknesses, and then being able to make the right choice for your patient, not try to um, make the case fit the modality that you feel more comfortable in. What, what changes do you think would need to be made in order to improve the training opportunities with multi-modality? 
Well, if you look at the sort of the BGCA survey, cardiac imaging is often, you know, it doesn't get the priority, it doesn't get the importance. It's still, it's still quite, you know, interventional cardiology, I think, is still the main focus for trainees and, and having their, their lab procedures uh, signed off. You know, echo is something that they have to sort of squeeze in. They might get some cardiac CT and, and MR uh, experience. But again, I think there does have to be a, a slight yeah, a change in focus, I think. And and I think that may come um, in a roundabout way with things like the ischemia trial and, and the move away from PCI and stable coronary disease. And I, I think that will be a change in cultural practice, which which may take time. Brilliant. One other thing that you had mentioned that you'd be keen to chat about, and I think this is a great thing to talk about, is being a, a woman in cardiology. And I was reading a paper that was published in 2019 in the Circulation Journal, and it was called Women in Cardiology by Sonia Burgess. And she was using Australian data in her research. But she explained that while women make up the majority of medical graduates, they comprise less than 15% of practicing cardiologists and less than 5% of interventional cardiologists. Now, that was Australian statistics. Then looking at the UK and how it compares, I was reading another piece by Dr. Shireen Jaiji, which was printed in the Heart Journal just last year, entitled Sexism Experienced by Consultant Cardiologists in the UK. And in her survey of male and female consultant cardiologists from around the UK, she found that 62% of female cardiologists had experienced discrimination compared to only 20% of male cardiologists. And she also found that a third of female cardiologists felt in some way that sexism had hampered opportunities for professional advancement compared with only 2% of male cardiologists who felt this was an issue for them. So with all of that in mind, you are a female cardiologist. Does any of that ring true for you? Yes, it, yeah, it, it, it does. I, I think the first thing I, I would say is I, I, I would feel very strongly that you should be the kind of doctor that you feel is authentic to you and who you want to be. And that's male, female, no matter what your sexual preference is, no matter how you look. You should try and be as true as you possibly can to your authentic self. And I think if you can do that with confidence and pride, people, no matter what their own initial prejudices may be, will come around and, and start to respect you for your self-belief and, and confidence in, in being the person that you, you know, know you truly are. I think it's important for everybody to see mentors in their workplace and, and to be able to think, you know that that's part of practice that I want to absorb I want to take that on I think it's probably a whole lot easier now than it ever was for for men and women in the NHS I think things like the European Working Time Directive and, and the focus on mental health and well-being in the workplace has meant that things are are getting better but I think we're all part of the solution to making it even better going forwards one thing that both male and female trainees often ask me about is, you know, when should I when should I think about having a family? What should I do if I find out I'm pregnant? Should I go to the lab? You know, there's there's lots of questions and and sort of um, anxiety around how you marry up the two aspects of your life, your career and your personal life. And I think the more discussion, the better, really. And and I would hope that trainees feel that there are more senior members of the team, be that medical, nursing, physiologists, radiographers, whoever they are, that they can they can talk these things through with. Because I think that's that's really key that you that the dialogue is kept open um, and so that, and people feel that they have 
that support within the workplace to um, to get advice and, and discuss these things through. Do you have any tips from your own experience of how you've uh, managed to balance work life and life outside of work? Childcare, <laughs> number one, is definitely <laughs> childcare. You have to you have spend a lot of time thinking about the the childcare that will enable you to really feel confident in the care providers that you are delegating your parental responsibility to so that you can then focus on work. But the, the worst situation to be in is one where you feel completely torn between work and home because you don't feel confident with, you know, with, with either. And also allowing yourself time so that you don't have to just be constantly being pulled from, from one set of responsibilities to another. So Allow, allowing yourself some some breathing space, I think, is is also really important. And keep smiling. Is the, <laughs> yeah, it's most, always important. <laughs> yeah, what whatever can go wrong will go wrong. So try not to take it too seriously and keep smiling. That's brilliant. And the very very last thing I want to ask you is, do you have any words of wisdom for the trainees listening to this who maybe have had things thrown a little bit up in the air with COVID? and they're trying to get their cardiology training back on track. Do you have any advice for them? I would say don't worry. There will be, well, I would say that your career in cardiology is one in which you will have lifelong learning. So there's arbitrary hurdles that you have to jump, ARCPs that you have to get through, etc. But this is about a long game. So just keep enjoying it, keep enthusiastic, keep fighting to change when you see that there are things that need changing and just remember it's a long game that's so good thank you great help and uh yeah thank you so much for your time really really appreciate it no problem 